Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Farm families have had enough, yeah. and they're standing up, and they're going to demand a little respect. Isn't that right? This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Another podcast. That's the voice of Liberal MLA Mike DeYoung talking about some angry farmers visiting the legislature this week. Rob, they were uh, angry and let the government know it. Yeah, good old-fashioned barn burner opposition yeah. <laughs> rally there in the back steps of the legislature. We haven't seen this liberal opposition do this very much. Where you, you know, it's an old opposition tactic. You bring in a bunch of real human beings, yeah. living breathing ordinary folks into this weird political bubble that is a legislature and there's about 100 farmers on the back steps of the of the the house and they're all ticked off about farming regulations yeah which are actually pretty complicated and and they detail essentially um, you know, the Agricultural Land Reserve, which I think goes back to what Dave Barrett and he Yeah, I brought in in the 1970s and an easy way to boil it down is that in the 1970s, the government was concerned about farmland being developed for industrial purposes or housing or something else and disappearing. And they said, we got to preserve and protect this farmland. So they created a registry of, of agricultural land and with very strict rules around how that land can be used. It's basically, you can only use it for farming. And I remember at the time, well, actually, I, I didn't cover it myself. It was before my time too, even though I've been around a long time, but... I know that farmers at the time were n- not very happy about it because it reduced the value of their land. Right. Um, but it's one of those things, another example from the Dave Barrett government in the 70s has kind of stood the test of time, you know, it's still here. So the, Another one is ICBC, which we'll talk about in a minute, but so it's still around the, the land. The, so uh, Barrett brings it in the 70s. Right. And then the Socreds, the other end of the political spectrum, try to kind of... Uh, weaken it a little bit. And yeah. then the new Democrat government in the 90s strengthens it back up. Yeah. And then the liberal government under Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark weaken it a little bit. And here we are now under the current NDP government, uh, Agriculture Minister Lana Popham, strengthening the ALR again. And it's causing some headaches for farmers, particularly around the issue we heard in this protest of if you're a farmer, you got land and you're getting older and you've got kids you want to work the farm they're growing kids maybe even got grandkids and you want them to work the farm take over that family farm and keep it in the family keep it operating you're going to be limited in whether you can build them another house right. on your you know 50 60 acre farm looks like you got a ton of land but the agricultural land commission this independent body um, it is the one that decides whether you can do things on protected farmland and it uses things like a, a rationale like is this good for farming? Does it preserve farming? Is the primary use of the land farming? And some of the farmers are really ticked off now because they don't know how they're going to pass their land on to the next generation when they can't even build a second home on their land. And you hear Agriculture Minister Lana Popham say, well, you know, okay, I mean, we're trying to protect farmland and it's about a balance and we 
we made a couple changes. There's two particular NDP bills, Bill 15 and 52, that the NDP brought in that, that, that farmers are quite upset about. And they're legitimate bills. Like one of them is, let's make sure there's no mega mansions on right. farmland. Yeah. You can just Google that term and you will find these enormous sprawling estates built on farmland, mainly in the in the Fraser Valley in the lower mainland where, yeah. you know, some people got the great idea that housing is so expensive. Why not buy a farm and then build the world's largest mansion? Yeah. And the NDP have <laughs> cracked down on that. They brought in a bill. But the unintended consequences of that are all these other limits on what farmers can do with their land. So the housing issue, the other issue, Smitty, uh, for those of you who enjoy uh, farm food and uh, cider, wine, beer. Who doesn't? Yeah. there's There are restrictions <laughs> on if you can open a restaurant on yeah. farmland, yeah. that farm to table kind of thing. You can do it if you serve alcohol that you produce on your farm, but you can't do it without that. And there are a bunch of examples of the red tape stifling small businesses, people being able to cook the food and the animals that they have on their farm. So those were big issues that came to the House. And you heard Mike DeYoung off the top kind of picking this up as a liberal issue. I, I thought they were fairly successful with it, Smitty. Yeah. What did you make of how the liberals kind of brought this I thought out? the liberals scored some good points. And you're right about the tactic of bringing real people into the place because that can really get under the government's skin. And it also gets media attention as well. Like anytime we can... Uh, uh, media around here don't have to put a pol- political talking head on on the TV. It's better when we get some real people involved. And when you bring them right to the legislature, I think it's it's a terrific tactic. So I think the liberals did do well on it. And some of these examples that they've cited don't seem to pass kind of a reasonable test of common sense. Like, you know, why can't I build a, a modest second home, my property for my in-laws? Or there have been some other crazy stories, like they won't even let you put a mobile home yeah. on a farm. Or the, the other example that you cite, I think, is a great one, too, that you can't let a farmer serve some sandwiches on a farm and trying to get people to come to his farm and, like you said, do that sort of farm-to-table stuff and eco-development and this kind of stuff, which you'd think they'd want to encourage um, rather than discourage. So I think that's another good one. There's been some other weird examples, too, of like farmers being told, no, you can't put a pumpkin patch in there for kids. And yeah. no, you can't build a corn maze. You know, there's some commercial entity that's not allowed. Stuff like that. I mean, I think most people would say, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, I can understand protecting vast tracts of, of farmland that's growing potatoes and is class one farmland. You don't want subdivisions or condos being built on there. I mean, obviously, that makes sense. This is what you want the Agricultural Land Reserve. But to kind of nickel and dime farmers from doing like small things like that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And I don't think it'll make a lot of sense to a lot of other people either. Some of it is a legacy of the previous government. I mean, there is, these are super complicated, weird, Byzantine, red tape nightmare rules. And it's not, I mean, you could argue it's either helped or not helped by an independent commission full of people you've never heard of making decisions with no real public accountability. And I guess that's good if you want to protect farmland. It's the, the core accusation that the liberals brought to the House to Agriculture Minister Lana Popham is you care more about farmland than farmers. And it was actually a pretty effective kind of argument because the NDP are very protective of the ALR 
this idea of protecting farmland. Yeah. And when you bring real people in with stories, old elderly farmers who were trying to figure out a way to pass their farm on. There was a woman here from Nanus Bay on the island who had created an eatery, employed 15 young people selling some of the products from her farm, got told by the Agricultural Land Commission, you can't do that, but you could do it if you served alcohol. So she spent a hundred. <laughs> she spent a hundred thousand dollars buying brewing equipment, oh. and started growing barley on the farm. And said we're producing alcohol. And the ALC said, "Yeah, that's still not good enough." Denied. And those kind of examples of people who are unable to make farming a go without some yeah. more help um, is really where the NDP kind of rubber meets the road on their farm protection legislation. And Agriculture Minister Lana Popham did okay, I think, in some of her defenses on it. She ate up any goodwill she had very quickly in question period. It was funny to watch these farmers who crowded into the public gallery. They were not happy. They were not happy, and they started yeah. listening to the baffle gab that you yeah. and I have to listen to every day in question period. And one of them got so upset, stood up in the middle of question period and started shouting at Lana Popham from the public gallery, saying, you're a liar, you're not being honest, and then was escorted out. Uh, there was actually a brief recess in question period because you're not allowed to stand up and lie. No. Just stand up and yell. Yeah, that's right. Or call people liars. So that was uh, uh, the emotion that was brought into the House. But I think it was one of the rare, uh, you know, I wouldn't say victories, but good items that the opposition has brought to the building with real people that the NDP wasn't able to deflect very easily. And we may eventually see some changes to the ARLR rules as a result of kind of this pressure. That could be. There are some cases that are that are tough ones for sure. I mean, there was another very prominent example that got a lot of attention this week about the the Women's Transition Centre in Abbotsford. Right. So this is um, a facility where women who are recovering from addiction, so if you like drug and alcohol addiction, looking to get clean, they go to this facility and it's on farmland. But the owners will say, well, there's an agricultural element to it because there's an orchard there and they're doing some local organic farming and and learning about food production as part of their recovery. So maybe that would qualify it as kind of agricultural activity. And the Agricultural Land Commission said, no, you have to move this women's center. This is uncomfortable for the NDP, obviously, who consider themselves to be big champions of uh, mm-hmm. women's centers and, and things like that and protecting vulnerable women. So for the NDP to have to be on the spot saying like, well, yeah, no, we kind of think that they should have to move this thing. Now, they are giving them two years to move that center. But still, for a lot of people, when they when they hear it and they see a headline like that, they think like, come on, this is like going a little too far with some of these rules. So. And the, the owner is a great example. The owners of that land are this group called the Gleaners, yeah. who take leftover yeah. um, kind of uh, excess uh, surplus farm products and they dehydrate these vegetables and they create those instant soup kind of packages, right. you know, right. and they send them to third world countries across the world to help. Uh, with homelessness and feeding the homeless. Yeah. They have applied also. Not only did they get rejected to help keep the women's shelter on their farmland, yeah. they had also applied to the Agricultural Land Commission to extend their little volunteer um, warehouse so that they could put some bathrooms that were to code and an extra, they have a 20-person space, and they have 90 volunteers making this homeless soup, and the ALCs, and it, they were extending it onto a parking lot. And the commission said, no, no, that's not yeah. proper farm use. You are denied there as well. So, But, you know, it's a very 
fascinating political issue because the ALC is independent. And when the liberals were in power, the ALC used to make lots of unpopular decisions, not allowing weddings to be held on farmland, Uh all sorts of things. And the NDP would stand up and they would say, when is this government, when is this government going to start protecting farmland and allowing proper use? And now the NDP are in power. And you heard Lana Popham say, and some of the question period questions this week, well, the ALC is independent. I can't override their decisions on why this women's shelter isn't allowed there. I can't. And I guess that's the, the double-edged sword, right? Is if you want to make something independent and then you don't like the heat you get from the decisions, you're kind of both in and out of whether you can change it. And that's a point. it's a political dynamic that we saw this week. The other Dave Barrett legacy from the 1970s, as you mentioned, Smitty, ICBC. Oh, uh, you've been all over this one like a hose on a dumpster fire, <laughs> to use an expression, uh, in, the, in the past week. You did a, a couple of really great columns on not only the issue of the losses at ICBC, but mainly kind of the issues around how much of a compensation claim is eaten up by legal fees, and then also how much ICBC is blowing on legal fees as well due to some new reporting. What did you find out there? Yeah, so this one of the things that David Eby has been talking about is the the staggering losses that have been suffered at ICBC. So this week we saw the uh, annual financial statements from ICBC, and they confirm two years of brutal losses. So two years ago, it was $1.3 billion. And then the next year after that, the last fiscal year, not much better. They lost just over a billion dollars. So they're losing something like, I don't know, it was like two... Almost two and a half billion over two years. Yeah, so. it's just unbelievable. And like just bleeding millions of dollars literally a day in losses. And EB has said that one of the big problems is legal fees. And if you take a drill down into these financial statements... They show $1.9 billion in payouts in the last fiscal year to about 42 personal injury law firms in Vancouver. Now, most of that money does go to people who have been injured in car crashes, in settlements, right? But a big chunk of it goes directly into the pockets of personal injury lawyers because they typically take a 30% cut of these settlements. So if you do the math on it, it's about half a billion dollars going directly to these lawyers. Now, EB is saying, look, this is, we, we're, we're spending too much on this stuff. So he has brought in some very aggressive measures that we've talked about in earlier podcasts to try and put a lid on these costs. And he lost that critical court case that we talked, I think we talked about it last week, right? Yeah, we should recap people on what yeah, it was. So, so what happened was, EB said, one of the things we're spending too much on is expert witness testimony in these court cases. So we put a, a limit on the number of expert reports that can be entered in as evidence in these disputes. And it was a maximum of three reports for cases over 100,000 and two reports for under 100,000, right? And there are examples, many examples of cases where there's been a lot more of these reports. I wrote about one where there were nine reports. They spent like 20, almost 30,000 bucks on these reports. And E.B. said, they've got to stop the madness. The trial lawyers sued the government and won in court. And the court sided with the lawyers and said, you can't do that. That's meddling in the court system and the legal process. And it's unconstitutional. So E.B. said, this is going to cost us a ton of money now. He says $400 million, supposedly. Now, here's the thing. That's not the only court case. There's two other ones because he's done other stuff, right? Like he brought in one where there's a, a limit on damages that can be awarded for 
quote unquote minor injuries. So typically soft tissue injuries like whiplash. So it'd be $5,500 be the maximum payout. Some of these cases have averaged 30,000. So that would save the government a lot of money there. Another one is taking minor ICBC cases, moving them out of the court system and into what are known as civil resolution tribunals, which is a cheaper, simpler format for dispute resolution. The trial lawyers are suing EB on both of those too. And who knows, they might win in court on those ones. Well, let's hear what... And if they do, then they're in real trouble with the government. Yeah, let's hear what David Eby has to say. we got a clip here of him both addressing the legal fees issues and then also what would happen, second part of this clip, is what would happen if ICBC did in fact lose those court cases? Well, we feel uh, we're quite well grounded in those changes uh, because uh, other provinces have done a uh, cap on pain and suffering awards. They have done tribunals that have jurisdiction uh, up to $70,000. Those have been upheld as recently as a few weeks ago in Quebec. Uh, but certainly, uh, if uh, we were unsuccessful in court on those, uh, it would be catastrophic. These are uh, the projected savings of a billion dollars a year from those reforms, uh, as well as uh, giving us the resources to increase benefits that hadn't been increased since the 90s. It would be a very uh, huge deal if, uh, if those reforms, for some reason, uh, were unsuccessful. But again, we have no reason to believe that that will be the case. Well, the numbers uh, shouldn't be surprising to British Columbians. Uh, one in four dollars. Uh, that ICBC spends goes to legal administration and legal costs. Uh, the uh, figures as a total may come as a surprise, though. Uh, when you look at 30% of the amount paid to law firms, if that's what they're taking in contingency fees, you're looking at more than uh, uh, half, half a billion dollars uh, in terms of just lawyers' fees alone that are paid for out of premiums from British Columbia. British Columbians. Uh, clearly, uh, there is room for improvement in terms of the efficiency of how uh, disputes are resolved. So catastrophic, in the words of the Attorney General. That's the word that jumped out at me, too. Because yeah, that's a billion dollars in savings. By taking those things yeah. out of the court, like you mentioned, putting a cap on the pain and suffering for minor cases, moving things out of court to civil resolution, that's a billion dollars in savings. That would, if, if, the, if the government loses those cases, um, we're, we're into a situation where I think no-fault insurance gets put back on the table, which is something that trial lawyers also don't like to see, uh, or maybe, like, who knows? Then we're in really uncharted waters. So it, the, there, there's a lot going on at ICBC. You would think that with maybe David Eby under fire for losing that court case, the opposition liberals could kind of turn up the heat on this file, maybe score some political points. But you have to remember... They tried. The, the Liberals are <laughs> the ones who are in many ways responsible for the kind of the mess that exists at ICBC right now. Because during the good years at ICBC, when it was making money, they siphoned the excess optional uh, revenue. We call it excess optional capital out ICBC. We, you have referred to it in a, in a better way as milking the golden cow in some of your columns. But basically, the optional side of ICBC's business, that extra insurance you can buy for many years has, has made them a ton of money. And yeah. government said, let me yeah. get my sticky little fingers on that. Yeah. And they took it all away so that when ICBC hit the tough times like they're yeah. in now, they're basically near insolvent. They have no savings to draw upon. Government took all the savings. And the liberals are in this position now where they want to attack David Eby. They want to bring up losing this court case. They want to try and make him look like he's incompetent. But at the same time, when they do that, they face a backlash. And here's a, this is a bit of a long clip. It's a couple minutes, but this is one exchange in question period that uh, came up between David Eby 
Uh, and I think it's a liberal MLA, Mike DeYoung, who is kind of trying to question him on some stuff. And, and just have a listen to this. Member Abbotsford West. Well, there's a remarkable performance. The attorney stands up and yeah. purports to criticize the very principles he's spending taxpayers' money arguing in favor of at the Supreme Court of Canada. You know, <laughs> you know what, what, what people are actually beginning to notice, uh, Mr. Speaker, is that every time this Attorney General steps onto the judicial ice, the other team scores. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, 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 and they've noticed this, uh, Mr. Speaker. He's full of bravado in the pregame interviews, but he's got the worst plus-minus record in the entire league. The rules, the rules he sought to impose were his alone. He deliberately didn't involve the rules committee that for decades has been utilized by att attorney generals to ensure that this can be done constitutionally. And now he's got a $400 million problem. And I predict, Mr. Speaker, that when he stands up in a moment, he won't answer the question that British Columbians need to hear an answer to. And that is this, are drivers going to be paying more or is the budget going to slip into deficit or a combination of both? Which is it? Attorney General. Try to imagine your, uh, uh, the situation faced by the member for Abbotsford West before the election. Uh, ICBC's hemorrhaging money. You don't want to make it an election issue. So what do you do? You claim the sale of the ICBC headquarters. It hasn't even been listed for sale yet. You claim the sale of ICBC. It's funny. You claim the sale of ICBC.com, the URL, for $10 million. You claim the savings for a report you haven't even received yet in order to hide the fact that ICBC is in trouble. A massive enterprise, a huge amount of work to hide the problem from the electorate. And now the member stands up and says, hey, the step you took wasn't good enough. Well, I'll tell you this, it was a hell of a lot more than they did. Advantage EB there. I think so. I, I'd say. I mean, EB had mentioned he's been waiting two and a half years to get a questions from, from the Liberals and ICBC. He had a stack of material, yeah. and he essentially burned the Liberal House down in question period. He, he pointed <laughs> out the previous Liberal minister, Todd Stone, had been up to all sorts of shenanigans trying to get rid of a building, give it off to the private automobile retailers association, yeah. one of these ICBC buildings. Weird. There's a video of Todd Stone doing that at yeah. one point, which is horrific for the Liberals, so even though it didn't go through, he keeps pointing out, as you heard there, that the Liberals commissioned a report many years ago to say, how's everything going at ICBC? And there's seven pages in the report that said, by the way, there's some there's some dark clouds looming. You should probably do something. So the Liberals ripped those pages out of the report and made sure they were never in the final version. And I don't know, Smitty, what do you make of like this idea? The Liberals clearly, they want to attack David Eby Leader Andrew Wilkinson wants to paint him as incompetent. There was a suggestion from Wilkinson in the House that maybe Horgan should get a new attorney general, which is ridiculous. But what did you make of the Liberals trying to advance this issue and just getting kind of the old uppercut knockout haymaker 
glow from EB in response. Well, I thought EB did well in kind of defending himself and turning it back on the liberals there for sure, as you heard in that clip. And, you know, EB has called this thing the dumpster fire famously, right, at ICBC. And I guess what he's saying is we didn't start the fire. I think there was a song by that. Billy Joel did a song once. We didn't start the fire. You guys started the fire. (laughs) And EB has got a good point on it because... Remember, we talked earlier about those massive losses. Remember, in the, in two fiscal years ago, they lost $1.3 billion, right? That was largely under the Liberals' watch because, two, you know, this government's only been in power for two years. So I think he's got a good point. The problem, I think, where EB and the, and the NDP are vulnerable here is that I think it, this situation is going to get worse. If he loses those, those other court cases that we talked about, I don't think he's going to be able to put the dumpster fire out. So I think the losses are going to continue, and they'll be on his watch. And the other vulnerability is rising ICBC rates. So we've talked in earlier podcasts about especially young and experienced drivers getting walloped with big rate hikes. If people start to see their own ICBC rates going up and up and up over the next couple of years, as we get closer to another provincial election, I think there's still an opportunity here for the Liberals to turn this thing around on the NDP and say... You know, you guys got to wear this now, you know, after you've been in power and, you know, people are paying through the nose for car insurance. This thing is a mess. You haven't been able to fix it. The the NDP are going to try mightily here to try and remind people that it's not all their fault. Maybe the liberals should take some blame for it. But people got a short term memory on some of this kind of stuff and they might turn an anger on the government on it. The best thing the liberals could do if they really want to advance this is to learn the lesson from our previous topic with farmers. And that is bring in real people real young inexperienced drivers and their parents who are going to point out things like my teenager learning to drive has got an ICBC bill for one year that is almost equal to or more than their tuition for school (laughs) in post-secondary school that kind of argument is is one that the new democrats will have a hard time with but having a bunch of political talking heads stand up in question period and try to attack the attorney general from a side full of MLAs and former ministers who, you know, set the dumpster on fire. It seems to be, based on this past week, a losing strategy for the Liberals. But I, I think I agree with you, Smitty. There's a couple other areas. At the end of the day, you know, maybe you're making dinner while you're listening to this or doing something else. You're probably going da-da-da-da-da-da-da, ICBC, ICBC. What do I have to pay is, is the bottom line yeah, right. for you. What is my ICBC bill? Yeah. And I guess that is really where the NDP are vulnerable. If your bill goes up... You're going to be angry, and you're going to look to the New Democrats and say, what did you do? I haven't been paying any attention to this ICBC thing for the last couple of years, but now i got a giant bill. What are you idiots doing down there in Victoria? And that is, I think, when the chickens come home to roost uh, for David Eby and the New Democrats. So, Yeah, I mean, there's lots of horror stories out there, and I think you're right. If the, if the Liberals were able to leverage that, maybe bring some people into the building here, like you say, to confront the government on it, I think that's probably a good idea. Uh, and they shouldn't be too hard to find. Because we've already heard lots of sticker shock stories from people getting hammered with huge rate hikes. And the the thing that's uh, damaging, especially for the government on this one, is there's kind of this rolling sticker shock because people's, everyone's car insurance matures at a different time. So every day ICBC is sending out renewal notices. So there's new ones that come up as people open their bills and go, what in the, you know, I'm getting hammered here with ICBC rate hikes. So I think the government is vulnerable on it. Here's another thing I detect is that I think this crisis at ICBC and combined with some other warning signs about the economy, like the downturn in the forest industry, for example, I think it's not only threatening the budget at ICBC, I think it threatens the entire provincial budget and the potential for 
this budget to go into a deficit. Mm-hmm. Right now, this budget is balanced, but it's just barely balanced, right? It's balanced on a razor's edge. And that's been a deliberate strategy of the NDP. They didn't want to come in here and break the bank. And, and Because remember, the Liberals had a lot of big surpluses, and we haven't had a deficit in BC in quite a while. Horgan wanted to keep it keep the budget balanced, but now it may have to, he may have to run deficits because of the problems at ICBC. And I think what you're seeing now is the NDP kind of softening the public up a little bit for that potential uh, outcome. That if we go into the red here, because they're start they're looking for people to blame, so they're going after the lawyers, the personal injury lawyers. They're to blame. They're going after the liberals, like we heard Eby. They're to blame. They're, you know, they're pointing to things in the economy that's out of their control. That's to blame. It seems to be they're already kind of getting their talking points in order here. Maybe they know behind the scenes now that the budget is vulnerable here of going into deficit. And they're already trying to get that message out to the public. It's not our fault. Find somebody else to blame for it. Well, you think of the numbers, right? The current budget surplus projection for this year is $179 million. The ICBC... Nothing court case that the government lost is going to cost 400 to 500 million there's your deficit right there and that's either going to require finance minister carol james to cut from other parts of the budget and she is trying to cut discretionary spending or dip into the kind of emergency contingency fund that is typically used for things like fighting forest fires and and other kind of priority emergencies that come up during the year so it's possible that they manage to scrape out a surplus maybe maybe uh if they do go into deficit and i've floated this idea in the past and I don't know if it really goes anywhere, but if they do go into deficit, I wonder if the New Democrats think, well, if we got to go in, let's go all in <laughs> and let's, let's let's go big. Because it's kind of <laughs> like when you get a credit card bill at home, right? And you get like a $300 credit card bill from going to Costco and all you did is buy the groceries and you're like, oh man, that sucks. You get a $500, $1,000 credit card from going to Best Buy and buying a brand spanking new TV that's beautiful and you love it and you're like, yeah, that's, that's great. I love that. <laughs> and I think the New Democrats might get to a position where if you're going to be in the red and people are angry at their ICBC bills and they don't, A, they don't appreciate the government's in deficit, but B, they don't see why because they're still paying more. Go further into deficit and give them something that they would like, like the child care plan at $10 a day or something, because then at least there is a reason for it. And, uh, you know, we see federally that deficit budgets are not the kryptonite that they used to be, but the BC NDP are kind of very sensitive to that because there's still that that old uh, whiff of the 1990s New Democrats who ran deficit budgets and, and the liberals have created a mythology about that and how incompetent they were at running the economy and yada, yada, yada. So I, I'm, it'll be fascinating to see these last two years of John Horgan's first term as premier, which I think he'll go to the full four-year term with the Greens. Uh, they may be very rocky, difficult kind of times for him and uh, it'll be fascinating yeah. to watch. Speaking of rocky, difficult, tumultuous times... Brings us back to our good friend Linda Reed, the uh, oh, yeah. the liberal MLA we spoke about on the last podcast, who was under fire for not participating in a legislature spending scandal investigation yeah. by uh, former Transit Metro Transit Chief Doug Lapard. We talked about her running away from cameras. Uh, Twenty eight years as an MLA, and she still hasn't figured out don't run from cameras. Well, she abruptly announced late last week that she is in fact not going to run again. Uh, did it in a manner that landed on the day that government was announcing historic United Nations declarations on the rights of indigenous peoples legislation, which 
kind of meant that no one was paying attention to it. Did it on a day when Linda Reed wasn't actually here. She'd been given permission to leave early, so announced she was no longer here. On a day no one cares when she's not here to take any questions about it. And But that looks like the end of Linda Reed. Her career is coming to an end, not running again. I, I don't think the Liberals have much of a choice other than to than to push her out the door. And I get the feeling it was a significant battle behind the scenes, but uh, that is one... The longest-serving MLA in the House, she one, is, yeah. one of the examples of renewal the Liberals are going to need to point to. Yeah, she's had a super long career. I mean, she's the longest MLA serving currently, one of the longest-serving women MLAs ever in in the history of, of the of the legislature. So, I mean, she's had an amazing run, but she's had some some rocky times as well. And I I think the Liberals themselves were getting a little fed up fed up with it. And the incident that we talked about with the investigation by the by the speaker's office into this disappearing alcohol that we've talked about on on earlier podcasts where she didn't fully cooperate with it with the investigator there i think that might have been in some ways the last straw for the sort of the liberal brain trust saying like you know it's it's just too much negative stuff here's the thing though if she had run in that riding she could probably get a win again because that's a safe liberal seat there it's in richmond, richmond appears to be yeah, right yeah so, but the thing is, for the liberals, they want, like we've discussed earlier, they need renewal. They need some new people. They need younger people. They need some, some uh, more uh, diverse demographics represented there. So, um, in some ways, I think the liberals are probably sort of happy that she's announced that she's stepping aside. Yeah, it's uh, one <clears throat> of I think probably you know half a dozen MLAs yeah, that other the liberals ones. would like to convince. To Who are the other ones? Well. Rich Coleman. Well, Rich Coleman's going to be a big one. I, I think um, the, the Mike DeYoung, who we mentioned off the top of the pag- podcast, he's kind of on the fence a bit. He seems to have adjusted to opposition life uh, a lot better than a lot of the other liberal MLAs, even though he's one of their oldest MLAs in terms of years served. So he may he may stick around. But Shirley Bond Shirley is another Bond. name that comes up in Prince George. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of, and I think there's some former cabinet ministers who are having trouble getting out from under the the ends of their files. Uh, Stephanie Cadu, who's a, a very um, good uh, person when you when you talk to her from Surrey, she's a Surrey MLA, just was hammered for years on the child welfare file and yeah. it's very difficult for her now to get out from underneath that on some of the things. So there's some MLAs who are going to have to make choices about whether they want to be in opposition. They may be in opposition for longer than they think, depending on what voters uh, feel. Uh, and is are they are they able to do it effectively, or are they just kind of is this that kind of the end? So Andrew Wilkinson, there's another one. Oh no, wait, he's the leader of the party. You can't get rid of him. He he will uh, if he doesn't win the next election, that will be a moot point, I think, yeah. because someone will get rid of him for him. So yeah, uh, but we'll keep an eye on that. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you read Mike Smith in the Province and myself in the Vancouver Sun. Follow us both on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast so you can get it right uh, directly into your ear holes every week uh, via Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, and other services. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week.